I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online platform. My name is Peter Tribowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's event. Today is a special day for the U.S. Center and the alumni and friends of the LSE in the U.S., many of whom are in the audience. The U.S. Center launched five years ago this month, and we have benefited so much from the support of the school, the many faculty and students connected to the center, and LSE alumni who have helped us become one of the world's leading centers on the United States and its role in the world. I especially want to single out John Phelan, General Course Economics, a few years back. John and his wife, Amy, have played a key role in elevating debate and analysis about the United States at the LSE through their support of the U.S. Center and especially through the Phelan Family Lecture Series, which allows us to bring events like today's to the LSE's many alumni and others around the world. And I know John is in the audience today. John, it is very good to have you with us and many thanks again for your support. Today, we're also celebrating a major milestone really in the life of the school, the 50th anniversary of the alumni and friends of the LSE. And frankly, I can't think of a better way to mark the importance of the occasion than having the LSE's director, Manoush Shafiq, on the platform with us today. Manoush, thanks so much for joining us. We're delighted you could be here with you. The, the platform is yours. Thank you so much, Peter, and welcome to everyone to this event. It's a wonderful uh, occasion to have this public lecture on the important topic of the future of democracy, which is part of the Phelan Family Lecture Series, and I wanted to add my thanks to John and to Amy. And it's particularly fitting, as Peter said, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the alumni and friends of LSE in the United States. It was founded in 1970 as a philanthropic organization to actually help the school fund the library, the Lionel Robbins Library, and then went on to develop student residences at Butler's Wharf, and over the years has funded 149 LSE master's students from the United States. They also began a wonderful tradition of a bon voyage party in New York for American students on their way to LSE. And that great innovation has continued and become global in what we now call destination LSE events that are held all around the world for our incoming students. So I really wanted to thank the, uh, the alumni and friends of LSE in the United States, and in particular, John Casey, who's the current president, Tom Kern, who's now the chair of the LSE Alumni Association, and the board of directors, the chapter members, the scholarship committee, and all the people in the alumni community in the United States who play such an important role in the life of the school and, uh, and in supporting it. I just also wanted to say something uh, as a prelude to this talk. For many Americans, and frankly for many students from other parts of the world too, but particularly for many Americans, coming to the LSE puts them in the most international community they have ever experienced. It gives them a global outlook that stays with them for the rest of their lives. I know in my case, I had come from Egypt and I remember coming to do my masters at the LSE and being taught by my Italian classmates how to make a proper pasta. I landed in a study group of UK civil servants who became lifelong friends and future colleagues. 
And all of us can tell these sorts of stories at the LSE about how it opened our eyes to the rest of the world. And that's, we suddenly realized the way we did things in our families and in our countries wasn't the way everyone else did things. And that experience of living, studying, and working alongside people from other parts of the world fosters empathy, innovation, and cooperation. And today's talk is a fitting celebration of that tradition. In the last few years, we have seen how the open, liberal, rules-based order was so dependent on, on Americans and America, on the US being the guarantor of the system and providing leadership in times of crisis. The world's failure to define a collective response to the coronavirus pandemic has shown us how costly it is when we try and solve global problems from our national bunkers. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from John Eikenbury make the case for liberal internationalism. And I'm grateful to John Phelan and his family and to the, uh, the friends of the LSE in the United States for doing their part in keeping Americans and America engaged in the world. So over to you, Peter. That is a terrific segue. Uh, to the lecture for um, for today, um, and I know that many many people, many people on the platform. We have a lot of IR students on the platform. They have eagerly been awaiting this event. So it gives me a lot of pleasure to introduce our speaker and discussant today, uh, Professor John Eikenberry and Dr. Leslie Vinjamori. We really could not be more fortunate to have this kind of a lineup. Um, John Eikenberry is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University, where he also serves as the co-director of Princeton Center for International Security Studies. He's a very old friend of the LSEs. John has held prestigious appointments all around the world, including just up the road at Oxford's All Souls and Balliol College. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's the author of eight books, some 14 edited volumes, and over 130 journal articles, essays, and book chapters. His newest book is just out with Yale University Press, and it's entitled The World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism, and the Crisis of the Global Order. And that's what he'll be drawing on in the presentation uh, today. And dare I forget it, I think you can buy a copy of it. Um, uh, it's available, the link is available uh, in the chat. Um, so um, if, you're, if you're eager to pick up a copy. We're also very fortunate to have Dr. Leslie Vinjamori with us today to help kick off what I, I am sure is gonna be a very lively discussion. I mean, Leslie is the head of the US and Americas program and the Dean of the Queen Elizabeth Academy for Leadership in International Affairs at Chatham House, which is literally just down the street from us in London. She's also an Associate Professor in International Relations and fittingly enough today, Leslie is an LSE alum herself an international relations MSc graduate, no less. Um, Dr. Benjamori has written extensively about international conflict, uh, human rights and social injustice. And for those of you 
uh, who are early risers in London. She's a regular early morning presence on BBC, CNN, and Bloomberg, where she provides insight about America and its role in the world. A final few words before uh, we get underway about the format. Um, John will get us started with 20 or so minutes of comments. This is a big book that he is going to reduce to about 20 minutes. <laughs> so, so he's going to hit the core themes and topics. Um, and then um, uh, and then Leslie will offer some comments on John's argument in the book to just kind of kick it off, get us started, and we'll open it up to all of you. And we've left a lot of time for questions. So please, please, please don't be shy. Send in your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. I'll do my level best to get as many of them in as possible to John and to Leslie during the discussion period. So that's where we are. Now, normally, you know, at this point, if we were in the old theater, I would be asking all of you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of the, those warm LSE welcomes. That's not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage all of you to pose questions in the Q&A period. John Eikenberry, welcome to LSE's online platform. It is really great to have you back at the school, even if only virtually. And I think everybody looks forward to hearing what you have to say. The floor is yours. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Director Shafiq, for your kind uh, remarks and your introduction. Uh, it's an honor to be here for this 50th anniversary alumni event. And uh, the, the Phelan family, uh, uh, is, 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 as you said, Peter, it should be recognized for the generosity and involvement in this. And it's just a terrific, exciting uh, opportunity for your center and for this anniversary. The United, United States Center obviously has its hands full at this moment. Uh, I understand there's an election somewhere uh, near where I live, and I'm sure your uh, center is, is heavily involved in that. Uh, so uh, Peter and the center are doing great things. I also want to thank LSE more generally because I have been a kind of um, constant visitor over the years. And uh, in last fall, in particular, uh, Peter and uh, uh, Michael Cox, Professor Cox from the Ideas Center, co-hosted me for a book workshop to kind of shop this particular manuscript that I'm going to talk about today. So uh, I want to thank them for that. And I also want to tell the audience that if you have problems with this book, please blame Peter and Mick Cox because uh, they are the ones who, who have their fingerprints all over the book. So my book begins uh, really with today's crisis of the post-war liberal international order. And like many of you who are reading the events of the day and thinking about international politics, have a feeling that we're at a kind of world historical turning point, that the old order is giving way to something new. We can't quite see what it is. There's a kind of sense of breakdown or unraveling of the global order. And in some sense, this notion of the crisis of global order for me, and as I suggest, in, as I open my, the pages of my new book, a crisis that can be defined and manifest as a kind of sense of lost uh, uh, confidence in collective solutions to common problems. This uh, loss of confidence in cooperation uh, perhaps uh, is seen most uh, uh, tragically, you might say, last spring when the G7 ministers got together virtually to talk about 
what has to be seen as the most uh, gravest uh, uh, public health crisis the world has, has seen in 100 years, economic crisis as well. Uh, and the group couldn't even agree on a communique, sense that, that we can't move forward collectively. And this sense of dysfunction, of breakdown, is obviously for all of us uh, worrying about international relations, leading us to ask very basic kind of uh, world historical questions about, about uh, international relations. For example, what are the sources of international order? What are the prospects for, for uh, uh, liberal democracy? Can capitalism and liberal uh, democracy be reconciled? And so we, as scholars, are, uh, are returning to the, the big questions and reading the, the classic books again, Morgenthau, uh, uh, Carr, Polanyi, the, uh, the Keynes-Hayek uh, debate, liberal thinkers, we're rediscovering Isaiah Berlin. So there's a sense of, of returning to the big issues. And for liberal internationalists, it's the question uh, that has an echo of the 1930s. Um, is there a future for a liberal international way of looking at and organizing the world? Where can liberals and liberal internationalists plant their flag? And that is really the question that I take up in my book. And I engage that question uh, in the first instance by taking the long view, by uh, looking not just at the last few decades, but, but really over the last several centuries, going back to the beginning and tracing uh, liberal internationalism from, from its origins uh, over the last 250 years. And when we do that, we realize that uh, liberal order and liberal internationalism did not begin in 1989, uh, nor even in 1945, that it's a longer tradition. And that longer tradition is really a story as much of struggle as it is of triumph. Uh, during this 250-year period, as I suggest in my book, you find golden eras, of course, but also global catastrophes. The post-1989 era looks more like an anomaly, like a kind of unusual few decades uh, in, in, in the context of this larger history. And indeed, over this longer run period, liberal democracy uh, has been deeply contested, uh, uh, often a kind of close run thing. Uh, in the 1930s and early 40s, it had a kind of extinction moment. I was very uh, moved and really inspired by a book uh, in writing my own book, uh, Ira Cass Nelson's Desolation and Enlightenment, which looks at liberals in the early 1940s, in 1945, as they tried to pick up the pieces, as they, as a generation, were uh, trying to make sense of a whole cascade of crises and catastrophes, the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, the rise of totalitarianism, the rise of total war, the Holocaust, and uh, oh yes, the atomic bomb. And it's a story, really an inspiring story of looking for ways to move forward, to reassess, to learn, and, and find toeholds where you can reform the system and dig back uh, into a kind of liberal reconstruction uh, period. So what I try to do in this book is, is do that, is to look back and reconstruct the long history of liberal internationalism, look, look for its lineages and, and genealogy, its ups and downs, how the liberal project has, has traveled a kind of crooked path of crisis and reinvention, and really three kinds of big kind of meta themes are, are what I've tried to bring out in this account. Number one, that there is a deep 
resilient root structure on which liberal internationalism rests. There is a kind of historical and political gravitas to the liberal international tradition with its enlightenment roots and the, its rise in the age of democratic revolutions and traveling this 200 years. So a sense that there's something here that's formidable that can sit alongside uh, the other great traditions of thinking about the world, realism, Marxism, critical theory. And it's kind of hiding in plain sight. It's there, but reconstructing it and showing that it has a kind of connective tissue of ideas and projects. Secondly, to talk about its accomplishments and failures. Yes, it's failures. We do uh, now in the current period think of liberal internationalism and immediately many young folks certainly think of the 2008 financial crisis or the Iraq war in which liberal order seems to be complicitous. But we forget the other side, the way in which liberal ideas fed into this post-war reconstruction, the building of an order that allowed for the reintegration of Germany and Japan, the launch of the European project, uh, the building of a framework in which liberal democracies could, could reform themselves from their laissez-faire 19th century origins to, to social democratic modern polities in Germany and France and Britain, the United States and Japan. Countries did it differently, but they all had a congenial platform for doing that and building that framework of institutions uh, internationally. So there are accomplishments as well as failures we need to bring back. And then thirdly, to, to give a sense of liberal internationalism as a, uh, as a, um, uh, as a, as a, uh, a kind of world-weary pragmatic endeavor, that it's not simply a kind of triumphal march into the future where liberal democracy is going to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, take over, but rather a more uh, pragmatic, opportunistic, reform-oriented endeavor to to deal with problems that gener are generated by modernity. So let me just ask the question, well, what is liberal internationalism? And like uh, Tacitus uh, speaking of the Roman era, uh, when he said it was, uh, it was uh, a period uh, with rich varieties of, of, of uh, rich in vicissitudes uh, uh, of its many different characteristics, so too that's true of liberal internationalism. The, the most uh, single, simple formulation of liberal internationalism might be Wilson's famous phrase, a world safe for democracy, building a world safe for democracy. And in some sense that that's true, but in some sense, a sense but, but in a sense not uh, conveyed in the popular uh, interpretation of that word. It's understood and passed down to us as a phrase uh, for, uh, for expanding the liberal democratic world, moving uh, liberal democracy outward, bringing its, the fruits of liberty to far off shores. Well, that's there, but the deeper meaning is really uh, literally to make the world safe for existing democracies, for building a kind of ecosystem or environment in which liberal democracies can, can manage themselves. So that is the kind of portrait that I try to uh, build in this, in this book, a, a sense of liberal democracies uh, managing their mutual vulnerability creating a framework for liberal democracies to, to uh, engage in what they always have to do and never will stop doing, which is manage the inherent contradictions or tensions, at least, in the liberal project, liberty and equality, uh, individualism and community, sovereignty and interdependence. So creating a kind of zone for liberal democracies to, to, uh, to survive and manage their affairs.
set of key convictions uh, exist here in the liberal tradition. Uh, four I would identify across these 200 years. One is trade and openness from Richard Cobden to the WTO, a sense that, that uh, trade and exchange is good, uh, uh, mutual gains are to be had, properly managed. Uh, institutions facilitate cooperation. Democracies, thirdly, have a kind of like-minded ability to cooperate, uh, special capacities and values that bring them together. They're unusual. They're open societies operating in an open international system. So they have a special uh, intensity of needing to work together to create that ecosystem for, for, of cooperation. Then finally, economic and security interdependence is growing and has been growing across these centuries. And liberal democracies uh, uh, realize over and over again, rediscover at different historical junctures that as uh, you might say, boiling down liberal internationalism to its core, we can only be secure together. We cannot be secure alone. One way of thinking about liberal internationalism that I, I emphasize in the book is to contrast it with realism, its great rival. And here I would simply say that realism tends to talk about the problems of uh, anarchy, uh, a, a decentralized state system that creates uh, security competition, balance of power, uh, and uh, sources of conflict between states. Liberal internationalism cares about the problems of anarchy, but in an important sense, its major framing can be seen as uh, addressing what I'll call the problems of modernity, of the industrial revolution, of the science and, and technology forces that are shaping and reshaping the international system, creating this sense of, of interdependence. And in that sense, liberals across two centuries have had an ongoing conversation among themselves about the nature of modernity. Does it stack the deck in favor of liberal democracies or not? They've argued it both ways. But generally speaking, across these eras, there's a sense that liberal democracy is a kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde phenomenon. It promises great advancements through innovation and science and learning, but also uh, great dangers of civilizational catastrophe. And in that sense, liberal internationalism can be understood as a project for creating governance arrangements internationally for harvesting the benefits of modernity and guarding against its dangers. A few more kind of points or pointillistic kinds of uh, um, observations about liberal internationalism before I talk at the end about the crisis and what we might do going forward. One of the uh, things I've seen in, in working on this book is that liberal internationalism is really a bundle of internationalisms. It's not one thing, and it's a, really a coalition, a shifting coalition. And in the 19th century, this is very clear, and I spend a lot of time talking about the 19th century origins of internationalism, but it had these different threads uh, that get woven together and then frayed and then rewoven together at different moments. Free trade uh, was clearly one of the first internationalisms of this liberal era. But so too, the jurists and the international law movement, the arbitration movement, the peace movement, uh, which was very important. And people like Richard Cobden were, were both free traders and peace builders, if you will, coalitions were, were forming along those different lines, the Congress movement. There were a thousand 
international conferences across the Atlantic space between 1815 and the Second Hague Conference in 1907, uh, the circuitry of internationalism was building during the 19th century. And, and you see then uh, in the Wilson period, a kind of bundling together, Wilson creating a kind of synthesis of internationalisms, making it a, a project, giving it a voice, putting it into the international system uh, at Versailles. So internationalisms as bundled, and this framing of internationalism allows me to then observe that some of the crisis of liberal internationalism in the current period is the unraveling of some of these internationalism. Specifically, you might call it the neoliberal strand, which has its focus on integration, uh, investment, trade, uh, uh, and at the international level, and the, the kind of social democratic internationalism, which kind of got unraveled and lost in that uh, uh, post-Cold War uh, era. We'll come back to that. The other point I would make in trying to capture the essence of my argument is that I, I do uh, see Wilson and uh, Franklin Roosevelt as kind of archetypes of types of liberal internationalism. Wilson uh, thought that liberal democracy was on the rise in his time, that there was a sense of, of uh, civilization and modernization spreading liberal democracy outward. And in that sense, liberal democracy was the glue that Wilson wanted to use to uh, tie the international order together, a kind of progressive modernity that could be uh, brought out in an in a, a international system based on the League of Nations international law and trade. Uh, the glue was the, were the liberal democracies. In FDR's time, the, the, the notion of of domestic and international order reversed. It was now the international order that had to be cr uh, created and constructed in a more comprehensive way to provide the glue to keep the liberal democracies together. Much more a, a thinking about liberalism for troubled times in the 1930s and 40s, a kind of reinvention of liberal internationalism. Very important. I would argue that as we think about the future, we should look back to, to Franklin Roosevelt in this period when security and uh, the way in which interdependence was shaping modern societies was giving a kind of was given a kind of profound um, uh, a sense of, of 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 importance and putting that set of liberal international uh, insights at the at the center of, of, of international order building. Now to kind of move toward the last set of comments, uh, 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 Peter, uh, I, I thought I would turn to what is, is in some sense the, the current debate. Why have things not worked out, if you will? Why are these troubled times for liberal internationalism? And uh, in some ways, I start that conversation by observing that in some ways, uh, our crisis is a crisis of success. That is to say, liberal internationalism that entered the world after 1945 was primarily a regional order, a kind of subsystem of a bipolar Cold War system. And it was not intended to be that way. FDR, after all, was hoping that there would be a kind of one world system with the Soviet Union, at least partially inside of it. The Soviets were at Bretton Woods. Um, but uh, the Cold War really uh, drove the world into two camps. And inside of the 
Western camp, liberal order was constructed. And it, it took on a, a club-like characteristic. Uh, you were either in or you were out. And if you were in, you had rights and responsibilities, but you also had obligations. And there was a kind of logic of conditionality. To be in was to get benefits like a mutual aid society, but to be in was also to buy into a suite of, of, of values and, uh, and obligations. Uh, we called it the free world. Um, and it was in some sense at this, in this period that liberal internationalism uh, experienced its greatest era. Uh, it promulgated social purposes that were uh, above what a kind of Westphalian system would, would be able to provide. Liberal democracies found themselves a project and found a way to, 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 to build a, an order that, that, uh, that in many ways uh, was the most successful ever created in world history, measured in terms of wealth creation, physical security, um, uh, and the promise of social justice. After the Cold War ended, at that moment of triumph, in some ways, while everybody was cheering and the wall was brought down, the seeds of crisis were, were planted in my, my argument that in some sense, everybody got in on the game. Uh, and that was something you would expect if you're a liberal and you'd celebrate if you were a liberal, liberal because liberalism and liberal internationalism is about progressive inclusion of people and and societies. Uh, liberalism in America is uh, a story, as Obama tells more eloquently than perhaps any American president, uh, an imperfect union that uh, has in that phrase a more perfect union, a sense that you're always trying to build on what the other the generations previously have done before us, a sense of, of expanding opportunity racially and in terms of the right to vote for women, uh, the expansion of rights and protections. So this kind of evolutionary, uh, each generation takes what they have been given and passes on uh, 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 the next generation of liberal order that, uh, that, that uh, builds on, on those achievements and goes further. So in that sense, yes, after 1989, uh, uh, the liberal vision was of a larger system, but something got lost in the shuffle. And the club character of this order, which supported these social purposes, uh, broke down. And as I argue in the book, it's, it's as if the club uh, uh, turned into a shopping mall, where, uh, like a shopping mall, you can walk in and, and uh, take what you want, wander in, pick uh, which uh, institution or regime you want to join, uh, ignore the others, a kind of buffet of of, of choices uh, and this notion of conditionality to be in was to get things, but also a kind of enforcement mechanism to make sure that uh, there was compliance with those basic norms and rules. So what do we do today? This, these are my last remarks. Uh, 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 three, three quick comments. One is I do think if we want to live in a, a world where liberal democracies uh, have another golden era where they are living together with shared social purposes uh, about environmental sustainability, human rights, uh, um, shared prosperity, 
a level of, of, of kind of performance of open societies to get there again, we are going to have to rebuild the club because without the club, those social purposes will dissolve in a larger global system defined simply by barren, realist, Westphalian principles. So I do think liberal democracies have reason to find their way back into some kind of coalition. Doesn't have to be a Cold War style free world, but a coalition where they can drive the agenda of rebuilding international institutions. Secondly, I think that there, there needs to be a, a kind of reframing of the ideology, which I try to do across my 350 pages of book, which is to say to, to, to reframe liberal internationalism as not as this kind of triumphant march to an ever more globalized world, but as a more pragmatic uh, exercise of managing our mutual interdependence, economic and security. That globalization uh, is not the goal. Managing our complex interdependent lives is. And that's different. That doesn't mean we measure success by are we more, is there more trade integration, but whether we have a kind of embedded liberal system where we have both the benefits of trade, we aren't headlong running into a mercantilist system, but we also sustain our social welfare uh, uh, ambitions. And then thirdly, I think we have to be willing to kind of play a kind of two-level game to to work for uh, democratic cooperation, partly in the face of a rising China that is illiberal and doesn't wish the liberal international order with its social purposes as I've defined them well, uh, it may want to live quite peacefully in a Westphalian system, but uh, my argument is that we need to, to, in some sense, do both, to husband uh, and uh, attend the garden of the liberal democratic world while same, simultaneously look for ways through this more uh, uh, universal style principles of sovereign equality, um, look for uh, opportunities to build a uh, common cause for global scale problems, climate change, proliferation of WMD and so forth. In the final instance, uh, I think liberal internationalism uh, needs to, as I suggest in this book, go back to its basics, recover its, its uh, world-weary uh, um, uh, essence. Uh, you can't be secure alone. You can only be secure together. And remember Ben Franklin's famous words to the 13 the representatives from the 13 colonies, his, his message on July 4th, 1776, uh, we must hang together, uh, gentlemen, and unfortunately they were mostly gentlemen, we must hang together, gentlemen, or surely we will, we will hang separately. Thank you, Peter. John, that's great. <clears throat> um, thank you so much for that. That's a nice big kind of overview of the book. Leslie, it's great to have you on the platform. John has kind of given a big picture. What do you make of it? How should we be thinking about this? Um, why not get us started in the discussion here with uh, a, a few comments? 
Okay, um, I'm going to be quick because I looked in the in the Q and A, and I think you already have 18 questions, which is not surprising given that this is the London School of Economics, and <laughs> it trains people very, very well to think and to think fast and to think think hard. Um, first of all, I want to say congratulations uh, on the book on a lifetime of work on um, liberal liberalism, liberal internationalism, and I did actually want to read out what Mick Cox said because I thought it was one of the most elegant comments that I've heard uh, that I've seen in a book cover. And he says, John Eikenberry once more shows why he remains the most intelligent and most articulate defender of a world built over two centuries by Britain and the United States. He goes on, but it is, it is quite a statement. And I, and I also, I guess I want to um, congratulate you because what an extraordinarily difficult time to make the case for democracy and for liberal internationalism. And you stuck with it. Bravo. It's, it's got to be one of the hardest challenges out there um, at the moment. Thank you to Peter um, for having me to the LSE U.S. Center and, of course, to Manoush, who I'm a big fan of. Um, so I just want to say a few things. First of all, the, the book is really worth reading because, um, not because, not just because it's John, uh, but because it just, it's very readable and there's, there's a lot in there in addition to the argument that sort of is rich. And I think a lot of what we do increasingly in the academy is less rich, at least in international relations in the U.S. And this bucks the trend on every single dimension. So it's just worth reading the words. And the, one of the sections that I loved most was when you talk about the different conceptions of modernity. You talk about yourself as thinking about the ascendancy of liberal internationalism but, you know, are we inexorably leading to um, more liberalism, more liberal values, liberal internationalism? Do we, secondly, no, or, or is the other vision that we have to actively bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice? That's where I am, just to put my cards on the table. It's pretty active and it's got to be fought for. Um, and then I think the third one was multiple modernities, but get the book and read it because it's beautiful. The solution that John um, puts forward to, which is this kind of bringing together Woodrow Wilson and FDR of pragmatic experimentation, institutional innovation, that's FDR, and then Woodrow Wilson vision. I mean, I don't know how you do it, but it feels exactly like where we need to be. And frankly, and I'm not just saying this because I'm an alum, but I do actually think it's where the LSE is. Um, so that's the space, and, it, and it's a beautiful book for, for putting it out. Um, I have a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, I mean, my impulse and my instinct and my sort of value and belief is democracy, but why is it democracy for you? You know, so many people right now are bending over backwards not to talk about democracy. They're talking about inclusion. They're talking about open societies, your colleague, Emmerie Slaughter. They're talking about uh, Al Stepan, who I had tremendous regard for the twin tolerations right tolerance there's so many ways in which people are trying not to talk about democracy you stick with democracy can you just tell us a little bit about why that is especially when you know the thin edge of democracy isn't delivering us what we want the leaders that we need secondly um, on fragmentation you talk about you know things are fragmentation in your remarks i kept thinking um, when you said you know people now they think they can pick and choose and i kept thinking that's what wealth is about. That's what entitlement is about. In the book, you talk about fragmentation. And uh, one of my reactions to that was, well, fragmentation sounds um, a lot less competitive than what it feels like we're moving into, right? Fragmentation feels like, you know, there are a lot of offers out there. If you don't like the development assistance, 
that, that Europe gives you. You can go to China or you can go to any other number of powers, Malaysia's in the game of humanitarian assistance. I mean, there's lots on offer. That's fragmentation. But actually, it's really competitive, right? And, and if the U.S. and Europe are going to stay in this game, we know now they've got to invest in infra alternative infrastructure financing, in alternative 5G technologies, in any number of things, or the game is over. So is it fragmentation? And is fragmentation code for, for covering up a really much more competitive game? Uh, and then just quickie, quickly on your three points, um, sovereignty and intervention, clubs and illiberalism. Uh, my question on um, sovereignty and intervention, you know, you, you have a great line in there about human rights and you say, you know, sometimes the international community just has to take a stand on things. And I, and I guess I want you to say more about where do you draw the line? Because actually, when the, as you know better than anybody, right, you've spent a lot of time in China, the rubber hits the road and there are concrete trade-offs, right? Do you, when and if there's actually a moment to solve or move forward in a serious way climate change, do you call China out for the camps, for the Uyghurs, for, for genocide, as Biden has you know, used the, the label of genocide? and risk that unraveling. So, you know, what do you do when the rubber hits the road? I also noticed that you talked about Brazil, Turkey, and India not liking, you know, hiding behind sovereignty and not liking the human rights discourse. You can add to the club the United States and the United Kingdom, as you know. Uh, secondly, on your clubs, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you. You know, we need a space for democracies to get together in an exclusive way and reinforce their values and talk about cooperation. Um, Biden's talking about a summit of democracies. The UK government's talking about the D10. They're sort of, you know, one and the same, it seems. But, you know, what's the risk? And, and where do you draw the, you know, how do you deal with the risk? You, you're, you know, you're schooled in international relations. You, your friend is John Mearsheimer, your intellectual enemy, I guess. Um, but, you know, encirclement, backlash, um, all, the, all the traps. So do you, do you, pay any heed to those arguments because it looks pretty risky right now. It looks pretty dangerous. And it seems like there's got to be something that really deals with that. And, you know, what's the mechanism? Because it's not just fragmentation. It's presumably about constructing alternative orders too. So, you know, if you're left out, you don't just pick and choose where you can get access. You just build your own other alternative order, uh, question mark. And then I guess the final comment, you know, sort of goes to that, which is what do you do about um, illiberalism? And again, you said, you know, you can accommodate or you can be aggressive. Um, and, and I, you know, I wanted you there again, just to say a little bit more, especially as we head forward into this brave new world, we all hope that there's a change at some point in November without too many lives lost, too many more lives lost. Um, and, you know, what is your what is your big solution for the big challenge of the day, which is dealing with the illiberal geopolitical competitor? So, John, before um, I let you respond to Leslie, I think um, what I'm going to do is uh, that's a terrific set of comments, Leslie, and I know that John is going to want to respond, but uh, we've already got 31 questions. Um, we've got. Uh, uh, hundreds of participants. I can see they're from all over the place. This is the power of the LSE platform. We've got folks from Colombia, from India, from Indonesia, and of course the UK and the US on this. 
um, and there are more coming in. Um, I have my own set of questions uh, having to do with the social contract that you raise and the club, but I want to give the first question to an IR student, um, Angela Chen, um, a University of Chicago student that kind of gives it away. So the question is, um, to what extent does liberal internationalism contain the seeds of its own destruction? Clearly she's been studying with Mearsheimer. By enriching its challengers such as China via the web of economic institutions, liberal internationalism also imposes costs on people with, within liberal democracies, lost jobs, increasing inequality, is the failure to protect the economic well-being of their own people a failure on the part of liberal states or is it an inherent problem with liberal internationalism itself and i must say that you know not only did one of our students ask that question but one of my colleagues mick cox posed the question also in the chat box by saying you argue liberalism is the solution but John Mearsheimer thinks it's the problem. How do you respond to that argument? There's two versions of the same argument, John. So maybe just to kind of get it started here in the discussion, how do you push back against the idea that liberal internationalism sows its, it's not a, a victim of its own success, it sows its own destruction? Thank you, uh, uh, Leslie. And I have those questions, which I will either answer today later or offline but uh, and and Peter I guess I, I, I should take up the the Angela Chen question or the, the Mearsheimer Mick Cox uh, question uh, which is a great one and I've thought a lot about that one of the there I, I do think there is a kind of uh, seeds of own destruction and that uh, uh, aspect to it and I think that's what I said that that uh, it's a victim of its own success that liberal internationalism, uh, became the only game in town because it was so bloody successful and all the alternatives through the great contests of the 20th century fell away, whether it's uh, those that were launched in Germany and Japan and then the Soviet Union. So in some sense, it's, it, uh, it became a kind of global platform uh, where, when no others existed and, uh, and others wanted to join. It wasn't simply as, as the kind of the Mearsheimer position holds that the U.S. saw, oh, now's our opportunity to, to over, uh, sort of take the world and make it all uh, in our own image, but rather there was a huge amount of demand for integration into this system. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time in South Korea. That's, in some sense, South Korea is a wonderful case of how a country that at one point was on the periphery of this order used it to make uh, economic and political transitions to uh, integrate into and rise up within. Um, but but what, where, where I see the kind of instabilities of the liberal project are, come from the fact that the liberal international project, perhaps even uh, more so than realism, is a kind of thin, incomplete, vision of the world it's it's not a it's not like marxism that 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 has a kind of answer for everything and there, and 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 has a kind of sense of all the different features of of the modern world are operating you have a kind of theory for all the moving parts 
liberal internationalism is a, as a smaller uh, um, sort of agenda that has to work with other forces that are out there. So if you think about the great um, uh, forces that liberal internationalism in, entangled itself with as it moved from the 19th to the 20th century, nationalism, capitalism, empire and imperialism, great power politics, and Anglo-American he uh, hegemony. All of those great forces were ones that the liberal international project, as I've defined it, had to, in some sense, accommodate with, appease, work with. So in some sense, liberal internationalism exists uh, in a world where it has to have allies. It's a, it's a flag without an army. No one marches to liberal internationalism, and that's it. Uh, you have to tie yourself to other other agendas, other movements, and that's true with 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 some of these forces that have worked to undermine the current system. I, I'm thinking really of global capitalism that got way ahead of the governance system that was in place earlier to manage that system. So, so my answer is kind of yes and no, mm -hmm. but it's not so much a failure of liberal internationalism. It's simply that uh, there's a kind of paradox that uh, of liberal internationalism. It has these uh, almost grand horizons of, intellectually speaking, universal vision, but it's a very, it, it's a kind of shape-shifting project that needs, to, that builds itself on other social forces that it can never, um, it can never digest and put on a, on a, on a peaceful footing. So it's always on a kind of turbulent global system of of states, of markets, of social movements, of identities, of nationalism. It doesn't have a program for extinguishing those other forces. It has to work with them. So it's always uh, juggling and adjusting and improvising and adapting. And it that's the way I see the current crisis. And that gives me some sense of how we might move forward. John, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to turn to the questions in a second, but I want to I want to pick up on a theme in the in the book that you didn't talk so much about in the presentation, but I, I you you write passionately about it. I'm very sympathetic, as you know, to the argument that you advance, and I, and I I think we're very fortunate that um, that we have Manoush on the on the platform because I know that she thinks about the issue that I'm I'm going to raise in a second, and I know actually. Leslie is writing to it as well. One of the things that you really talk about um, in the book is the need for a new domestic social contract or a bargain in Western democracies, not only the United States, but the United States, but, but other democracies as well. And one of the interesting twists in the argument is that liberal internationalism requires an expansive and inclusive domestic social safety net um, if it's to succeed. So the problems are not only those that are outside, you know, that it has to deal with, but also internally. Um, and the social contract is badly frayed right now in, in, in Western democracies, including the United States. And so I suppose the question for you that I would like to hear, and I, I'm, I'm happy to open this up to, to Manoush and, 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 and Leslie as well, is what gives you hope? Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. 
What gives you hope that that social contract, in fact, is going to be reconstituted? Because the problem can't be solved just from the outside. It's got to be solved from the inside as well. So some thoughts on that. It gives you an opportunity, I think, to, to, to talk about something in the book that I think plays a big role. It is one of the five or six kind of big themes in the book. Uh, uh, Modernity is one, and the, the kind of uh, uh, Wilson FDR uh, uh, archetype, uh, and, and, and many others. But, but you are correct that I observe in the book that when I look at 200 years of liberal internationalism, the greatest moments internationally for cooperation have been ones where that internationalism has been tied to progressive social movements, whether it's reform liberalism at the end of the 19th century or uh, the progressive era that uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Wilson lived through and had its counterpart in Britain and on and the continent and elsewhere, uh, obviously the New Deal and then the Great Society period. Each of these moments of kind of rebuilding and extending the social contract was part of the international agenda. And internationalism was seen as legitimate and reconcilable with nationalism because it was seen as as a kind of in common cause with uh, progressive national ambitions of building a better society, more inclusive society. <clears throat> and think about what the liberal project is trying to do. It's almost dizzying. You're trying to sustain an open society at home, free press, uh, uh, freedom of all these different rights, religions, and and, uh, and, and so forth, and you're also <clears throat> trying to live in an open world. And that is, uh, uh, there are so many uh, kind of inherent tensions uh, in that balancing act. And, and one of the ways you reconcile it is, have a, is having this kind of domestic society that, that facilitates shared prosperity and inclusion. And um, I, I, I think that that is the missing piece. I do think internationally going forward, we are getting ready for an internationalist moment. I think liberal internationalism's time is almost here again, um, uh, partly because of the what I call the backlash to the backlash, that this kind of revolt against modernity that, that, that Trump and others uh, represent is going nowhere. It's taking people and driving them ever nearer to the cliff. And uh, so the kind of uh, uh, backlash to the backlash. But you're right, that, that, that can't simply be an international response uh, uh, to share our vulnerabilities and plan together, work together. But, but it does require doing things at home of making the international system work for everyday people who have everyday problems. And uh, a Green New Deal, um, uh, a kind of re reweaving of the social contract. Um, it's happened before, and it's repeatedly so. And, and the kind of moments of innovation and rebuilding of the coalition in favor of growth and shared, shared prosperity has come precisely when things seem so dire. And uh, things seem pretty dire. <laughs> so I, I, it doesn't, that's, I, 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 that's, doesn't ensure that it will happen, but it, it does mean that that it's a crooked pathway, and there are lots of opportunities. And those of us who wish the liberal project well should be, you know, readying our talking points and and extending our visions and 
and rethinking old uh, agendas because I think our time will come again. Uh, Manoush, you know, I, I don't know whether you want to jump in. I, I, I know you're writing your own book on, on the frayed social contract. And, and I don't know, are we, uh, are we at the moment where John has just defined it as the backlash to the backlash? Mm. You know, is that where we are? I mean, I do think that the U.S. won't be ready to re-engage in liberal internationalism until it gets its own house in order a bit more. And in terms of re, you know, re, you know, the reason the reasons Ameri Americans have this perception at the moment that international engagement is costly and not beneficial to America. And actually, I think it's been hugely beneficial. It's just the benefits have all accrued to a very small group. Uh, and having those benefits shared more fairly, I think, would would reignite a willingness to have a more, you know, support a more liberal international order. Are we on the cusp of that? Gosh, I hope so. I mean, I think we're not quite, I think that cusp might take a few years. Um, but I thought it, well, another thing you said, which was very interesting, is globalization is not the goal. It's managing our interdependencies for the common good. And what you see at the moment with COVID is people are trying to reduce the interdependencies. They're trying to reduce the interdependencies in terms of trade, in terms of labor flows, in terms of technology and interdependencies in terms of the internet and that kind of thing. And I do think we're going to have to enter a period, if we are on the cusp, of recognizing that those interdependencies are beneficial again and remaking the case for why trade is, you know, creates benefits and why mobility creates benefits and why sharing information and technology creates benefits. Uh, and I think it will take a few years to make that case again. Yeah, uh, we, I think we have a liberal internationalist playing piano somewhere. Piano is <laughs> <laughs> being tuned. <laughs> so that's fine. It's kind of nice in the background. Um, Leslie, before I turn to another question, do you want to say something here? Yeah, let me just say something very quickly, which is, uh, two, I guess, two things. Um, you know, how, how do you make it work? And I guess when, when John says Green New Deal, I think, yeah, it is, as we know, it's about a growing, growing role. State mandates, not market incentives. So are we going to see a shift towards a growing role for the state in making that inclusion and that distribution, inclusion as opposed to redistribution, really work? My concern, um, the second thing, the second reason why I guess I'm optimistic is not, not only because things are bottoming out, but also in the U.S., the unprecedented wave of social protests and social engagement. And even though the numbers are down now from where they were in June in terms of the percentage of Americans who are really behind that, they're still very high. My worry, and here I, you know, I would value John's historical comparison because I don't have it. Um, my worry is that... Um, so many people are doing so well, at least in the U.S. There are so many people that are just doing phenomenally well. The stock market is robust. I mean, Manush knows a lot more about this. But my reading on it uh, was in California recently. It was a wake-up call. And I just went, wow, we're sitting here in liberal London talking about inequality and poverty and destitution and death. And my God, are people wealthy, certain category of people wealthy. So, if, if the bottom has dropped for so many, but actually for a lot of people, even through the pandemic, it hasn't bottomed out. I don't, I mean, I guess I, that's where I get very worried about whether there's going to be a moment to actually have the kind of transformation that, that John talks about. 
So John, you know, one of the things in the chat box that's going on here, where we got a lot of questions, but there are people saying they would like to hear some responses to Leslie's comments and questions. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up on one of Leslie's and tie it to a question that has come in as well. Um, and that is Leslie referred, asked you to kind of say a bit more about the club and, um, and rebuilding the club. And I think one of the issues that might, you know, that is coming up in the chat box too, that it might be worth having you say a bit more about rebuilding this club, which is basically the OECD and the major powers, major states in the OECD. I mean, to what extent does that work if China is not very much a part of that club? And there's questions that are coming in in all different ways, shapes, and forms here on the, in the chat box about China. And if China is outside, I guess the question here to kind of amplify on Leslie's point is does it pull states, even a South Korea, you know, um, in two different directions um, or, or not, you know, in terms of kind of the, the idea of using kind of going back to the club. This is kind of a return to the early Cold War period. So maybe you can say a little bit more about that and pick up the question about China and how China sits with respect to the club. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it, um, it, it does connect with Leslie's question about democracy as well, which I wanted to answer. Um, and uh, I do think the book probably doesn't have as much about China as it should, or there, there could be another chapter that then sort of says, okay, now what about China? And I do reflect on it. And at the, very, the, last, the last paragraph of the book is really, in some sense, um, raising the question for today as a kind of echo of the question in, of, in FDR's uh, era, when there was contemplation of a world where liberal democracies would be a kind of a, a shrinking minority in a larger illiberal world. And could the United States and its liberal democratic partners survive in such a world? And I, at the end of the book, I, I raised the question, is there a kind of, a kind of critical uh, portion of the world system that the liberal democracies need to, to, hold sway over uh, to preserve themselves, or to put it the other way around, after a certain moment when the, the illiberal larger world grows larger relative to the, to the democratic world, at what point does that have a kind of system effect and make it harder and harder for liberal democracies to, to remain uh, liberal democracies? And I do think that China is a problem for the liberal order. Um, and that one does, would not want to simply do what I think China might want, which is to kind of move to a new system where it's really Westphalian sovereignty mm -hmm. and everything else is negotiable. And as I said earlier, th that um, might be a peaceful world, a managed world, a one world system. It will certainly 
be one where you can, in that framework, tackle some of the most important problems, global warming, WMD, but you miss that kind of critical mass of democracies that are working in various ways to, uh, to uh, safeguard certain values they share, human rights, certain values I think are, that are embedded in their political economy, um, and, uh, and certain values about, uh, about, about liberal society and open society, free speech, that, um, that would get lost and would not have the kind of international framework to support in the, in the China-centered world. So I do think we have to you know, walk and chew gum. We have to try to re rebuild the liberal democratic world because for me, if, if that liberal democratic world loses its critical mass and becomes a weaker a kind of shrinking minority within this larger system dominated by illiberal states, then values I hold dear, and I think you do as well, are jeopardized. And that goes to Leslie's question about what's all the big deal about democracy? And, uh, and in some ways, there is a kind of first move choice you have to make if you study international relations. Do you wake up in the morning and say the most important issues that we need to worry about are the problems of anarchy, whether we can manage great power competition and, and prevent an arms race and, and ensure deterrence here or, or uh, uh, something else there? Or do you think the first questions you need to ask in the morning are, how can I act today and how can we collectively act to safeguard values we care about? And I think they're enlightenment values about speech and freedoms of, of uh, information, transparency, accountability, civil society, um, uh, and, and these more 20th century rights, uh, you know, FDR's four freedoms. Uh, uh, so uh, from the preamble to the declaration, to the Gettysburg Address, to the 14 points, the Atlantic Charter, to four freedoms, and into the current period, there are a set of liberal values that have been extraordinarily robust and are part of are complicit in the wealth that Leslie says is out there and the kind of comfort that many of us have and the kind of ability to write books that we think uh, uh, we want to write rather than we worry about writing. And so I don't want to live in a in a kind of Orwellian world where I have to worry about whether I have basic freedoms. And so we should safeguard those. Uh, they aren't, there's nobody who is out there who can rob them if we act in the way that we can act. There, we don't have to invent a new theory of the universe. The problems we have, the solutions to the problems we have, we kind of know them. Uh, whether it's environment, whether it's reform of the social contract, it's kind of the politics isn't there yet. But John, this this um, I've got I've got a, a bunch of questions that have one way or another have to do with the election and the implications of uh, a new administration. And I, I, I must say, I think Grant Gilbert, who is uh, an LSE alum, IR, MSC 2000, gets the award for stating it so succinctly. So. What's the first piece of pragmatic advice you give to a new U.S. administration to strengthen the liberal international order? And we can push this afterwards, but, you know, 
you've got full reign here. You, you know, you have, okay, let's just put it this way. You have Joe Biden's ear and he's elected. What's the pragmatic piece of advice? First of all, I, I would wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> and a big one. Uh, it's Trump. I don't know what that was all about, but uh, uh, comparing mask size. Um, the, I guess you know, it, you know, what I would probably do or, or what my, my suggestion to, to President Biden would, is, 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 a, is a suggestion I made in, a, in an article in Foreign Affairs this uh, past summer, uh, which is a, not a, an original idea, but it is a kind of uh, a gathering of, you know, of the estates general, so to speak, as you think of the French case, or the gathering of the partners uh, of, the, of, of the countries that are kind of, you want to strengthen alignment with, uh, to reaffirm uh, ideology of, of, of security cooperation among the democracies, the alliances themselves, extended deterrence, um, uh, cooperative security as, a, as, a, as an important value that liberal democracies, democracies share across the different regions of the world. So I think a kind of, you know, this, the, the first thing that the U.S. is going to have to do is rehabilitate itself. Uh, who's going to trust the United States for the next cycle of history? Uh, uh, this, we're so polarized that it, we could have four years of this, but then it could go the other way. So wh who wants to invest in a leader that looks so uncertain? So you, you need to kind of, as we learn in international relations, make credible commitments, things that cannot simply be undone overnight to uh, redeploy, to join. The first announcement should be we are going to rejoin the Paris Agreement. We, uh, there should be a raft of on the first day kinds of announcements. But I think at the kind of process level of, of kind of signaling uh, a kind of ideological reorientation of America back to a kind of uh, cooperative, democratic-centered internationalism, this kind of uh, uh, gathering of the, of the partners. Gathering of the partners, right. Okay, so that kind of a return to um, the kind of core allies and trying to repair and rebuild the relations there. Symbolic steps right. that, that kind of signal what's to come. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that people, this actually goes back to a point that Manoush raised earlier, that people need to realize, you know, if it is a, a, a Biden administration, um, the country is it's going to continue to be deeply polarized. Um, that's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. And, <laughs> and he's going to inherit a pandemic with uh, millions of people out of work. It's not, look at the, the debates have nothing to do with foreign policy in any direct sense. People are focused domestically. So he is going to have to be the next president, I mean, this would be true if it, it's Trump, although he's already kind of predisposed that way, it's going to have to be very, very um, strategic about where the political capital is invested internationally, it seems to me. I, I, you know, I, that's just echoing your point, I think. I agree, I agree with that. And I think that you would hope that some of America's partners will do things that will register domestically in the United States. As, you know, we're we're 
we're now uh, returning to a leadership role and see what it brings us as a society. In other words, we, we've got, you've got to kind of, you need kind of performance legitimacy for, mm-hmm. for re-engaging. And so uh, ways to, to, to have wins and to show that this is something that brings, brings benefits back to, to everyday Americans. So I, I agree with you. Uh, it's, it's, gonna, it's, a, it's a very tough, very tough uh, period. And, you know, you only have one FDR every hundred years. So I, it's hard to imagine fireside talks and rebuilding uh, coalitions. But I think, I think just to be focused on the United States for a moment, I think people are just weary of this incessant craziness. And it's not just those who are in blue states. I think there's a weariness to this and kind of need for kind of competence and a kind of calm resolution focused on problem solving and governance. I, I, I think there's a real demand for that. And uh, so, uh, so I think there's a, there's going to be an opportunity here. Let me pick up uh, another thread in that runs through a number of these questions. We've got like 44 questions on here. I mean, so um, uh, it's it, they're I mean it's great just kind of like flipping through them. They're they're terrific. And I do want to welcome um, the people who have joined us from Hong Kong and Iraq and Spain. It's good to have you on the platform uh, as well. There's a, a, a line of questioning that, um, that focuses on international institutions and I think reflects a disappointment with them and that, that they have, in a sense, failed us. I mean, and, and one in particular has focused on the WTO. Um, and another one on uh, of the WHO. And, you know, a, a sense that the, the problem isn't only inside the United States, or it's not only the, the Brexit crowd in the UK, but that, that there's a problem at the level of global, global governance, that those institutions are not, I guess, I think I take the point here, they're either not representative enough of the distribution of power in the international system. That seems to be one line of argument. But another line of argument, if I'm in, you know, interpreting it correctly, is that they're not democratic enough. And so that they're not reflecting the voices of people in the democ- in the club itself. So some thoughts about that. And yeah, if, that's you, a- if you had a magic wand or, you know, you could change it, where would you, how would you change it? Yes, uh, that's a great question, and uh, there, there are lots of things to say about that, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, um, one of the things that I've argued is in the book a little bit, but it's in this foreign affairs article the next, called The Next Liberal Order, I, I do try to suggest that this so-called D10, this, the high-capacity democracies who might be the, a coalition that would uh, be built, built or rebuilt uh, in the next uh, administration, next period, uh, w- would be uh, driving reform of these institutions, starting with uh, a re- rethink of the global trade re- regime. And I think uh, the questioners are absolutely right. There's a kind of sense of breakdown and failure and disappointment across the boards. And But you kind of have to get in there and work with them. We, there probably were mistakes along the way with the W. 
a TO. And there may have been a mistake at the very beginning with how one uh, negotiated the entry of China. Uh, 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 the, the importance of conditionality and uh, status and so forth. Uh, but we, we are clearly going to need things like principles of, uh, of, of dispute resolution, mo most favored nation, non-discrimination, the kind of norms that the liberal institutions have embedded in them at a kind of deep level, bring them out to, to help inform this kind of next generation of in this case, trade regime, or in the WTO, um, rethinking how to prepare the WTO for the next pandemic. What, what we don't want to be doing is pulling back as the Trump administration is doing and saying we don't want anything to do with them. And then China uh, is, is, is in some sense burrowing into the institution. Some of this is very good, but some of it is not so good. Some of it is a, is a is a, is a contest over values of stripping out uh, um, uh, human rights values, democracy values that uh, we might want to uh, uh, negotiate uh, uh, their uh, continuing uh, place within those institutions. So uh, one of the possibilities is that there could be a kind of constructive competition between China and this D10 or the US and its allies on rebuilding and reforming international institutions. Uh, it doesn't have to be destructive competition. It can be, we are both trying to uh, invest in the next generation of international institutions and rules. And we would like to see them be friendly for liberal democracy and, and to be uh, uh, functional for the kinds of uh, political systems that we have. And, uh, so, so that's a kind of battlefield, you might say, that is, is there that could bring us back into the reform uh, agenda in a way that could help us uh, address those disappointments that I think we all feel. Um, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to kind of stay on this for a second because of a very kind of interesting set of questions that's come through as well, and and, and maybe Manoush will want to jump in on this as well. Um, on the international organizations, Brandon Fitzgerald, who is um, an MSCIR student at UCL, we do allow questions from UCL, um, is uh, asks, can you speak to how liberal international organizations could better manage developmental in inequities among core and semi-periphery and periphery nations? So part of the problem here is that if you try to deal with this as a club issue, you run the risk of perhaps, I think the, the, the concern here is exacerbating asymmetries that exist between advanced and less developed nations, uh, kind of, you know, center versus semi-periphery or periphery. So some thoughts about that, John, and, and Manoush, if you want to come in, or Leslie, yeah. Let me let my two panel partners go first if they want to. I'll go back to something that Leslie said. I think the international development architecture has become fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, and 
just like with the political architecture. And I think in some ways for developing countries, it means they have many, many more choices in terms of financing opportunities. So if you want to build a railway or a water system, you can go to the Chinese, you can go to Japanese Exim Bank, you can go to the World Bank. And so in that sense, um, developing countries do have more choices. Um, but I think where the current structure fails is not so much in responding to national development needs, but it's failure to be able to deliver global public goods. Um, and, you know, what climate, trade, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, rules of the game around, uh, around the WTO, for example. Um, and so for developing countries, I think they're, they're this, the current structure, I mean, the current structure serves them okay at the national level, but I think fails all of us at the global level. Good. Maybe we can, unless John, you want to jump in or Leslie, I can move to the next question. There's also another thread. I've gotten a lot of questions on Russia um, and where does Russia fit in all this? Um, let me see if I can find this one uh, from Alina Galamova, um, an LSE alumna. Um, what do you think the role of Russia is in building a world safe for democracy? Is, um, is there a role for Russia? Well, it, I guess you have a, there's a role, but does Russia want to play that role? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there was, you know, Gorbachev defined a role for Russia and, and then kind of his successors retreated. Uh, um, the West probably didn't put, array the choices and behave in the way that made made it more likely and probably made less likely that they would would uh, step into a role as a supporter using involvement in the international order to um, uh, uh, build a coalition domestically to tackle problems of corruption and oligarchy uh, it, 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 in some sense uh, it, there is a kind of inherent contradiction between the, the current regime structure and power structure in Russia and being a full member of a, of a liberal international order given what that order entails. So, so, so if Russia were to play, so I'll just make two quick points. One, if Russia were to play a role, it would be in a kind of successor regime that would be wanting to, as many countries have over the decades, use involvement to strengthen the hand of reform groups, reform elites in their country who want to redistribute wealth, uh, uh, overcome corruption, reorganize the resource extraction sector, um, uh, and, and, and bring people back into the, into the coalition. So uh, at some point, the international, liberal international order, if it's active, up and running, healthy, legitimate, if the, these liberal democracies can re get their self back on their feet, that, that creates a, a kind of club or an a order out there that Russia, at least the reform elements in Russia, the, the liberal internationalists, and, and indeed there were such things around Gorbachev at one point, I've written about that, 
to to make their way into the order. I think there is probably I've also written about the the kind of higher liberalism that in some that at some moments the liberal democracies need to to think in complex ways about what they do and how it has impacts in illiberal states. And it's not always pushing democracy until they say, okay, it's often um, restraint that creates space for coalitions inside of those states that have to do it on their own because we can't impose our vision on them. So it's that kind of complex or longer term strategy of trying to find a future role for Russia. Right now, it looks pretty toxic to me. Okay, thanks for that. So look, we're at 527, which means it's, it's the bewitching hour and it's time to um, to wind things down. I'm actually going to give John the last bite at the apple here. And, you know, I was tempted earlier on to ask the question, what keeps you awake at night, you know, when you think about the liberal order? But I actually want to just give you an opportunity. What gives you the most hope when you look out, you know, at um, today and scanning, whether it's the U.S. or scanning kind of the international horizon, you know, for our many students that are on the platform today? Where's the, where's the promise? Where's the hope? What, what is it that like just kind of really, when you wake up in the morning, you think, you know what, it's, 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 it's there, it's working, you know, yeah. um, it's the, it, the potential is there. I guess I would say that what makes me optimistic, if that's the word for it, is that we've been here before, that it's a long, we've, we've seen a long struggle unfold over really decades and centuries uh, within liberal societies. And it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. Uh, it's, as I said earlier in my remarks about, you know, uh, the, the, both inside of societies and among these, these liberal states, there's a kind of ongoing agenda that uh, is passed on from generation to generation. The fact that we've kind of uh, dusted ourselves up, off and got up from earlier moments when things have been down. Um, I love this uh, Obama quote from from his eulogy for John Lewis in in July of of the summer, where he said, now this country is a constant work in progress. We were born with instructions to form a more perfect union. Explicit in these words is, is the idea we are imperfect, that what gives each generation purpose is to take up the unfinished work of the last and carry it further than anyone might have thought possible. So I, I think it's the that kind of uh, ratcheting of 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 the liberal project that uh, you you continually uh, uh, work to to find opportunities. When at at Princeton we took uh, Woodrow Wilson's name off the my building and and Wilson was a very complex figure. He pushed the arc of history in certain ways, but but he kind of tamped down or prevented that arc to bend in other ways, mm-hmm. uh, particularly on race. Um, but uh, uh, we, we continued on. And the day before Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated, there was a women's suffrage movement in Washington, D.C. And the white women suffrage activists would not let the black women march with them. They were forced to march at the end of the parade. So even our most prized progressive movement to give women the right to vote was itself 
tangled up with legacies of race. And yet now all of that is, is in the background and we have a larger and more inclusive society. And we have standards that have never really been realized, but that keep us on track for making even an imperfect international order uh, a, a site for struggle to make it more closely resemble its founding ideals. And so it, that's what gives me optimism. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> uh, that, that, is a, that is a great place to leave it. Um, and it really captures, I think, the sensibility of, of the whole book. And it is, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it, it's, been a, it's been a great opportunity to listen to John Eikenberry and Leslie Benjamori. It's been a special treat to have Manoush Shafiq on here with us. Plenty of food for thought. Uh, John and Leslie, on behalf of Manoush and the LSE, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. To everybody out there, thanks for joining us. Stay healthy, stay safe, take care, and we'll see you next time.